For those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you this morning with our congregation. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to follow along, and there are pew Bibles. And so this particular chapter is located on page 1014. Now, I preach from the New King James primarily because I haven't worn my Bible out yet, this Bible out anyway. And the Pew Bibles, and many of you have the Easy Southern Version. Uh, so some of you still have the Old King James. That's fine. The verbiage changes some, but not considerably. So last Sunday morning, we read uh, this passage from verse 13 through verse 3 of chapter 2. We have moved from the first 12 verses, which references hope in the gospel, although we will continue to speak about hope for the entire book because that's one of the major emphases that Peter is writing under inspiration by the Spirit of God to the diaspora, to those that were scattered abroad in Asia Minor. And now we have moved into, beginning in verse 13, the hope in the gospel will produce holiness in the gospel. So this morning, I want to read um, the first uh, verses 13 through 16, and then we'll focus on uh, holiness in the gospel, primarily girding your mind. We started this last Sunday morning. We didn't have, perhaps we'll finish verse 13 this morning. And there, Peter writes, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it, it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Holy, a quote from the book of Leviticus. When we come to that verse, we'll go back and look at number of the verses in Leviticus about holiness. Let's go to the throne of grace in prayer. Father, help us to consider and remember the cross this morning. We celebrated the Lord's Supper last Sunday morning we are reminded that his body was broken and his blood shed in order that we might have redemption. And so because of these first 12 verses, these indicatives, these facts about our salvation, we now move into a passage of Scripture that commands us about how to live. So teach us that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lauren McAfee, a lady that uh, is an author and also a contributor to the Gospel Coalition, wrote this about the decision the Supreme Court made. And I quote, This is uh, an historic moment for America. The 1973 uh, Supreme Court uh, ruling Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion nationally, 
has been overturned. Doesn't mean it's been eliminated, just means it's been overturned. However, it's not the end of abortion in this country. The court's ruling means each state will now decide its own regulations. At such a moment, the church will undoubtedly be asked, what are you going to do? In response, we must be ready to constructively apply the biblical teaching of the Imago Dei, the image of God, in a way that extends beyond our theology to our everyday practice. Do not, she writes, do not make the critical mistake of assuming abortion is an issue out in the culture, but not in our churches. In a survey of post-abortive women, 70% claimed a Christian faith, and 43% were attending church at least monthly at the time of their first abortion. Engaging abortion isn't just about what we do in our states and communities. It's also about how we care for women in our church pews, end quote. It's a great little read. You can find it on the Gospel Coalition. I encourage you to, on their website, go in and read the remainder of what she wrote. So it then becomes our responsibility to continue to support women and uh, the decisions that they need to make. Do you find it? I find it very um, telling that those that are anti-life, not pro-abortion, not pro-choice, anti-life are attempting to destroy many of the pro-life clinics about this, about the nation. And Stephanie worked there for the, in the local one for a number of years. They do much more than uh, than uh, teach women about uh, alternatives to abortion. So you can tell the, what's the old saying? You can tell the color of something by the shade or something. So you can tell that. And yes, people are angry, but people are angry every day. And so pray for them. Also this week, Gallup Poll uh, released their May 2022 survey of Americans and the number of individuals that believe in God has dropped from 87% now to 81%, and the largest demographic of those that do not believe in God are millennials or younger. So from that, I understand that the pulpits are not doing a very good job. In fact, if you go back uh, between 1944 and 2011, approximately 90% of Americans believe in God. Now, it doesn't get you into heaven just believing in God. The devil believes in God. And it doesn't save him. He cannot be saved. There's a reason for that. We'll talk about it in Second Peter. 17% now say they do not believe in God. And this is a drastic change from the 40s through the 70s. 98% of Americans said they did. 
So something has happened over the past 50 years or so, and I think we know what that is. People have rejected the God of the Bible, which is just an indication of where we are today. There's not been much preaching, biblical preaching from the pulpit, because in some cases pastors are afraid, and in some cases the people of the church are determining what needs to be preached. And so in 2013 it had dropped below 90% to 87% now, it's 81%. Younger liberal Americans, among that group, only 68% believe in God. 32% do not, uh, 32% don't. So what or who do they hope in? Who do they place their hope? In. Dr. Peter, uh, Daniel, rather, uh, Doriani, in his commentary on 1 Peter, has this introduction to this particular passage, and he writes this In 1588, the Spanish Armada, with 130 ships, sailed toward England, bent on depositing over 50,000 Spanish soldiers on English soil and deposing Queen Elizabeth. But before the troops could go ashore, Spanish ships had to get past the English Navy. The Spanish warships were larger and had bigger guns, but the English ships had superior commanders and greater speed and maneuverability. The Spaniards knew all this when they set sail. How, then, could they hope to succeed in battle if their guns could not attain a firing position? The Spaniards believed that God was on their side. Therefore, they hoped the English would expose themselves to their heavy guns. They hoped the English would foolishly engage them ship to ship in hand-to-hand -hand combat so that the many soldiers aboard them would win the day. But as you've heard it said, hope is not a plan. The British kept their distance, and shot the Spanish ships to smithereens. The Spanish paid dearly for vain hope. So where is your hope this morning? Turn briefly to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll come back to 1 Peter 1 in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 13. You may know this as the love chapter, and it is a love chapter. In fact, Paul writing about charity, the old English version, and uh, translated here and in most other English translations, love, the verse 13 of chapter 13 Paul culminates the chapter by saying, And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. 
First slide, if you would, brother. Keep that in mind. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. The hope of the gospel narrative is presented to us in verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1. And the purpose of that is to reveal how we are to live, how we are to be people of hope. And one of the ways that we do that, in fact, the primary way Peter says that we do that is through holiness. Now, Paul says there are three great Christian graces. There's faith, there's hope, there's love. Now, there's a great deal written about faith. Read many books on faith. Great deal written about love. But you don't find that many books on hope because we misunderstand it. We misunderstand biblical hope. Faith is believing God in the present. We're born again by faith, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Hope is believing God for the future. So are you believing God for the future? Or are you trying to control events so that things are manipulated in such a fashion that your hope becomes real? Faith believes what God has said. Hope believes what God has promised to do. Covenants of the Old Testament. We've been studying the book of Ezekiel in our Sunday school class. And God is reiterating and will start to reiterate the covenants that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Mosaic Covenant as we approach the end of the book, of the study of the book of Ezekiel. Hope believes what God has promised to do. Faith is trusting God for the present. Hope is trusting God for the future. But both, faith and hope, trust God. Both. Faith accepts, hope expects. That's what Peter's saying. Faith appropriates Jesus Christ for us. Hope anticipates Jesus Christ for us. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, a lively hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Keep that in mind. Look at verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Two great truths about Jesus. What's the first one in verse 3? Our hope rests on what? What's the word? Resurrection. On the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here in verse 13, our hope also rests on not only the resurrection, but what? The revelation. The second coming of Jesus Christ. The resurrection without the second coming is an incomplete hope. That's why we are to live in such a manner that we expect Jesus to return. Now, we closed out last Sunday morning with this definition of hope. 
It's the confidence that by integrating God's redemptive acts in the past with trusting our trusting human responses in the present, the faithful will experience the fullness of God's goodness in the present and in the future. Not just the here and now, the future. How do you live your life? I was reading a few weeks ago about uh, uh, raising teenagers. Just happened to come across a particular article, and I was reading it, and one of the, the and it may have been by Paul Tripp, I don't recall now, but in any event, uh, the author said that one of the, one of the earmarks of being a teenager or a very immature young adult is that they live for the present. They don't think a great deal about what's going to happen tomorrow. They just live for today. Unfortunately, there are many adults that do that. We just live for today. Peter is saying our hope rests in Christ being raised from the dead and his second coming. Biblical hope differs from the Greek view. And our definition, our understanding of hope is based on this Greek view. That human beings express hope by nature. There's good things that are going to happen. In fact, we use the word luck. Now, take your concordance, your biblical concordance, and search for the English word luck. Do you think you'll find it? No. Well, they've had good luck. Or they just had bad luck. And we live. We claim Christ as Savior, but we're not girding our minds. We allow our minds to be diffused. We allow all manner of things. In fact, this morning, all manner. What am I going to do after I leave church? I got the afternoon. What am I going to do? We are so easily distracted because we have focused on the resurrection and forgotten that Jesus is going to return. And later in this passage, he says, verse 17, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges. Somehow we have segregated God's judgment from being believers. And yes, God's judgment, his wrath was placed on, upon Christ on the cross of Calvary. We will not have to endure the punishment for our sins, but that does not mean we will go unjudged. And there will be, even among believers, a call to what we've done with the greatness of our salvation. Next slide, if you would, brother. Brother. <clears throat> 
Biblical hope avoids the subjectivity of the cultural hope, the good and bad luck. And it avoids it because the foundation is on the Trinity. Peter has taught us in these first 12 verses, he's gone back and reminded us of the redemptive acts of Christ and the birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now he is saying, okay, you have all of that. That is your legacy. But you need to live for the second coming of Jesus. Misplaced hope is useless. Good and bad luck, talk of good and bad luck is useless. Biblical hope is potent. The foundation for our hope and the hope that's found in the gospel we've covered in the first 12 verses. And now we're going to look at over these next few verses the commands. And that's what they are, they're commands. They are the imperatives. You have all these wonderful facts, Peter says. Now what do you do with the facts? They need to be applied. What happens? We close with this last Sunday morning. This is basically a review. What happens when we hope in, in the grace brought to us by Christ? That's what he's saying in verse 13. Number, uh, verse 14. We do not conform to evil desires. Verse 15 and 16, we conform to God's holiness. Verse 17, our conduct should conform to the reality of the Father's judgment. Just mentioned that. Verses 18 and 19, we are redeemed from corruptible things. Peter said that in the first part, verses 1 through 12, and now he says it again, he reiterates it. And aimless conduct, drifting with the precious blood of Christ, who is the Lamb of God. Now, what do we do with that, now that we're born again? And in verses 20 and 21, he says, we believe in God. And when we do, it results in the incorruptible work of faith and hope. Tremendous teaching of the Word of God. Next slide, brother. Now, what Peter is going to do in these verses, he's not only going to call us to holiness, but he's going to give us reasons. And we know that because he talks about the mind. The heart doesn't reason. We're not to follow our hearts. Jesus taught this uh, explicitly in the Gospels. For out of the heart comes corruption, evil thoughts, adulteries, murders, so forth. We're not to follow hearts. We're to reason with our mind. We're to gird up our minds. And in verse 13, there's this transition, the word therefore. We looked at this uh, last Sunday morning. We also went to Romans chapter 12, where the word is used. And we, you'll notice again in, in uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. In other words, 
these evil things, these wicked things that we still want to hold on to in this world, put these behind you and desire, he says, as newborn babes in Christ, the sincere milk of the word, so that you may grow. Now, what are you growing into? You're growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ and his holiness. We're not like Christ if we're not holy. Just being good, just being gracious, just being kind is not like Christ if we're not holy. So the word therefore means a conclusion reached based upon a previous premise or judgment. So again, therefore begins this text. It introduces the conclusion to what Peter had written in the first 12 verses. It includes for us an inheritance that he talks about, incorruptible, because we are the adopted children of God. We're not naturally born children of God. We must be adopted into the family, and that comes from our receiving our faith in Jesus Christ and being born again. We're different from the world. That's why Peter is writing to these people that have been scattered all over the Mediterranean world. So literally, what he's saying is this. In light of the marvelous salvation that has been prepared for us, we come to the conclusion that is to be drawn from it. And that conclusion is, gird up the loins of your mind to be holy. Therefore, the word gird means to gather up. And it's used only here in the New Testament in reference to the mind. It's found a number of other places in the New Testament. But only here does Peter or any of the other authors of the New Testament reference our minds. Now, we've talked about the first 12 verses. It indicates fact. They indicate fact. They are, we've talked about it, indicatives, doctrines. And these are the facts that we are to obey because we are God's chosen pilgrims. Because we are begotten by God the Father. Because we have an untouchable inheritance, incorruptible inheritance, and because of the greatness of our salvation. So Peter doesn't lead us, leave us in the lurch, and he doesn't start his epistle with verse 13. He starts it by teaching us that we have this marvelous salvation and that marvelous salvation brings about holiness. Next slide, brother. In the first century, to gird up the loins, most everyone in the first century, uh, men and women, even boys and girls, would wear long robes. And to gird up the loins did not typically involve mental activity or process. That was just something that you did. It basically, when, you, when they wore long robes, if there was a call to move quickly, they couldn't. And so they would hike up their robes. In fact, soldiers would often wear robes as well because it helped protect their uh, legs from all manner of... Uh, uh, sticks and briars and so forth as they move through the uh, undergrowth. 
But when it came time for battle, they would hitch up their robes. They wore around the robes a sash and they would place the robes, they would roll the robes over the sash so that they could move expeditiously, so that they could move with alacrity, so they could move rapidly. Peter would have done this when he ran to the tomb. The prodigal's father, in Luke 15, verse 20, it says he ran to meet the prodigal. Now, he can't do that with long robes, so he would have to hitch up the robe. And for men to do it, especially if they were not soldiers, for men to do it was uh, an accursed thing to the Hebrews because you exposed your legs. So one of the beauties of the parable of the prodigal is the fact that the father did hitch up his robe, did run to find his repentant son. If we were to go back to Exodus chapter 12, you would find that this begins the use of the word gird. And there God told the Israelites during the first Passover, he said, you are to eat the Passover rapidly. The normal type of meal for Hebrew family or even in Christ's day, the normal type of meal consisted of reclining the Last Supper, Reclining on pillows and taking your time to eat. But the Lord said at the first Passover, you are to eat rapidly. You are to gird up your robes, gird up your loins. You are to be ready to leave Egypt quickly. You've been too long here. You've been exposed to the hypocrisy. You've been exposed to the evilness. You've been exposed to the wickedness, the paganness, the idolatry of the Egyptians. It's time for you to leave. Gird up your loins. Jesus, also in Luke chapter 12, instructs his disciples to gird your waist. He's teaching there about the second coming. Peter would have been there. Peter would have heard that. And Peter so records here, you need to gird your minds because of the hope that's going to be brought to you when my Lord returns again. I was there when Jesus taught this. Be ready because you don't know. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in that chapter, you don't know the hour or the time of my return. Be ready. Just as the Israelites left Egypt, be ready. Just as we are to live today, be ready. Occupy till I come, and when I come, be ready. Is your mind girded this morning? What's distracting you this morning? Next slide, brother. Now, this is a simple metaphor, but Peter uses this to challenge the readers, his readers. And guess what? That's you and I. That's the folk here this morning at Flat Creek. To challenge your readers for deep thinking. You know the facts about your salvation. 
Now, how do you apply it deeply? The New International translates, prepare your minds for action. In, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul would write to the church at Ephesus, and he'd say, stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth. A contemporary type of thinking would be roll up your sleeves. Be ready. We're lulled to sleep, are we not? He talks about soberness. We'll cover that in just a moment. Now, we're called repeatedly in Scripture. Repeatedly. Not to leave our minds in the parking lot when we come into the house of the living God on Sunday morning. Not to bring with us any baggage. Now, being sinners, we do. And I must confess that often there are things on my mind as well as I'm formulating these notes and placing these notes in some type of order. But that's due to our sin nature. It's due to being distracted by the devil that Peter will write about. And in fact, we'll see that a little later on, First Peter chapter 5, when he talks about he's a roaring lion devouring you. We're to awaken our minds. And we are to awaken our minds because of our salvation. We weren't just saved to be ignorant of what God would have us do. No. We want to think clearly. And we want to think deeply about the things of God. These protests over the past, in fact, just about any protest, not only the protests over the past few days. <clears throat> you watch a protest, what happens? They get these big bull horns and they shout at each other. Your mama wears army boots. They shout at each other back and forth. You think, are they thinking deeply? No. They're just shouting. That's all. One of the reasons that we're to be reverential when we come into the house of the living God is so that we may think clearly and deeply about who God is and about who we are in relationship to God. Now, there are some that would say, okay, well, if you put too much emphasis on the mind, it, would lead, it leads to rationalism, it leads to modernism. Postmodernism, all these isms, okay? It leads to anything that stands as an antithesis to biblical Christianity. Well, sometimes that may be true because, the, uh, because of the sin, our sin nature, our minds suppress God's truth. It happens every single Sunday morning. Our minds suppress the truth of God. And we will continue to do that until this book, to the Spirit of God, reaches our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That happens. Sin causes it to happen. See, we have this very innocuous view of sin. Well, I, 
I don't, you know, I keep the Ten Commandments. That's what the young, rich young ruler said when he came to Jesus. He said, all these I've kept from my youth. But Jesus said, no, you haven't, because you still lack one thing. And it doesn't take but one thing. Sin causes us to suppress God's truth. And Peter says, because of that, you're not girding your minds. You're not being sober. Next slide, if you would, brother. Now, God created us. <clears throat> when God created Adam and Eve, he talked to them. He communicated to them. He allowed them great freedom. In fact, more freedom than you and I have. Great freedom. And then he instructed them. All is at your disposal. But one tree. Everything that I have created is at your disposal. Look at these flowers this morning. God created a world of color so that you and I might enjoy color. Look about you this morning. Different colors all over. So that we might how often do we think about that? As beautiful and handsome as your array is this morning, Jesus said that Solomon in all his glory is not arrayed like these flowers. Distraction. We don't have our minds fixed on the wonder and blessedness of God. His commands, and he says that in this verse, he says, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is in Jesus Christ, that the revelation that's going to be revealed there. God's commands are always rooted in grace. And make no mistake, grace is a command. Because of grace, we are commanded. The facts, what the Trinity has done for his children because of Christ is always the foundation of the imperatives, of the commands. And how we live, how we should live because of his grace. Grace is a command. Once we've received it, it's a command. So what happens when we rest in the hope because it's set on grace brought to us by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, verse 14 says, we don't conform to evil desires. And there are all manner of things. And as we move into verse 14, we'll look at those. All just minute things, minutia in our life that causes us to conform to evil desires. You see, we don't love passion in our ignorance. We don't love with passion in our ignorance. In other words, if we, 
if we don't know who God is, if we are ignorant of who God is, we don't love God. Not in the not in the nature that we are instructed in the Word of God. Now abides these three, faith, hope, and love. The Word of God in its beauty contains the, the sacred revelation of the Trinity to us. It comes first to the mind. When you teach your children, they need to understand sin and they need to understand it up here. When we sin, we need to understand it up here. Therefore, the more we understand the truth of God, the more it grips and changes our hearts. I listened to a message this morning as I was finalizing the, uh, my notes from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great man of God that's been with the Lord now for over 40 years on this particular verse. He went on for an hour. Yeah, there are some people that preach longer than I do. He went on for an hour expressing to his congregation 40 years ago the need to focus your mind on who God is. The more we understand the truth of God, the more it grips and changes our hearts. Next slide. Now here's a takeaway from this. R.C. Sproul wrote this. And we're looking for some feeling. Touchy feeling. I want some feeling. And Sproul said, I don't always feel God's presence. Peter didn't always feel God's presence. We know that because he denied the Lord three times. We know that because he questioned the Lord at just about, if there was ever anyone in the scripture that was confrontational, it was Peter. But God's promises do not depend on my feelings. The hope that rests in the promises of God does not depend on how I feel today. Nor does it depend on how you feel. It is based upon the validity of the word of God. And then he uses this phrase, be sober. Now, Peter uses this word a number of times in his epistle. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Interestingly, in chapter 1, he's talking about the second coming. And now he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. Be serious. Be sober. Now, look at chapter 5. Verse 8. Be sober. 
Now, you would think he was writing to a bunch of inebriated Christians, would you not? But that's not the phrase that he's using here. Be sober. Be vigilant. Be on the watch. Be ready. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, sinking whom he may devour. Paul used a similar thing in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He talks about sobriety, being sober. Because of the mind, they are linked together. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, he does the same thing. We are to hope in the grace of Christ Jesus because it will culminate in his revelation. And hope, this type of hope, does not become real without our disciplined thinking. Without soberness. And the word here doesn't mean to abstain from drink not to become inebriated. The word here means a calm collectedness in spirit. A calmness as we're exposed to the truth of who God is. It's sobriety in the sense of self-control and equanimity. In other words, our, our character is always the same. An evenness of mind. Are we so in our minds? Now, Peter's not saying that believers should avoid drunkenness, although we know that the Scripture does say that. But that we live in a way where we do not become dull to the reality of God, that we are not anesthetized to the world's attraction. I got these tickets. Oh, I got these tickets. I'm going to this ball game. Oh, it's going to be great. I got these tickets. I'm going to this concert. Oh, it's going to be great. That we don't become anesthetized to the world's attractions. Now, I enjoy a good ball game. Enjoy a good concert. But if that is our primary goal in life, moving from point A to point B to do that, Peter is saying you're not sober. So follow the sobriety that is looking toward the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next slide. Now the reason he says this is because it is, we are distracted. We're distracted people. We've got to go someplace. We've got to see something. We have the fear of missing out. We're not going to see this. We've got the bucket list. We've got to do all these things. The world's attractions make us drunk with drowsiness to the revelation of God's grace in Christ Jesus. And we concentrate on earthly desires. That's why he wrote what he said in verse 1 of chapter 2. These desires, earthly desires, rob believers of the hope of grace. And they lead us to excess in passion and rashness and confusion. Again, yelling through the microphone, yelling through the uh, uh, megaphone. That's what they call them. Those without hope, 81%, only 81% now, and that's still a fair number, but 81% 
believe in God and only 68% of the millennials or younger believe in God. So they're going to live lives primarily of hopelessness. And when they do, they are going to wallow in some type of drunkenness. Regardless of whether it's alcohol, regardless of whether it's marijuana, regardless of whether, what it may be, they will wallow in some type of drunkenness. They wallow in self-pity because there's no hope. Now, are we to live like that? And when we do, we deny and defame God's name. I know Jesus. So what happens, and Peter will begin to address this in 2 Peter, more so than in 1 Peter, but what happens is the world seeks orgies of perversion before it sinks into the drunken stupor of hopelessness. How can I excite myself? How can I be exuberant? Pagan worship. Peter. Also in Luke, he witnessed the Gadarean maniac. Remember that great story? Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee and he comes to a, basically a, a Greek, a Greco-Roman place. They are the Gadarenes. These were mixed-race people. And he made his way out of the boat up to a place of tombs. And there was a wild man there. The Bible says he was naked. He was uncontrollable. Peter had witnessed this. He didn't have any hope. Jesus asked him, what was wrong with him, and they said, my name is Legion, for we are many. The demons had possessed him. He was so far gone that demons had possessed him. And Jesus cast the demons out. They went into a herd of swine, a herd of pigs, and then he touched him. Would we do that? Oh, no, 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 no. He might have the COVID. Well, he had something far worse than COVID. Peter had seen this. Christ exercised the demons. He clothed them in his right mind. And he girded him. He sent him back to the village to witness about what had happened. Gird your minds. When Christ exposes himself to you and I, people change. The Holy Spirit instructs believers to avoid any form of mental or spiritual intoxication that confuses the reality of hope in grace in Jesus Christ. Let's close with this this morning. Next slide, brother. <clears throat> To be sober is to be realistic. To be disciplined 
to be focused, to live accordingly. And if we don't have our minds girded on the biblical reality of Christ's grace, we can't make the hard ethical choices like holiness. Peter is saying, remain alive, remain alert for the Lord's coming. Don't allow your mind to wander. Discipline your mind. So what are we to gird our minds with? And that's what he begins to teach us in verses 14 through 25. Obviously, it has to be the word. Rest your hope fully on grace. Do we at Flat Creek take solace in God's grace? Are we trusting in obedience to His truth? If you're listening, say amen. Grace will never end. Just because we go to heaven doesn't mean that grace is going to end. Grace lasts for an eternity. We're transformed by grace alone in this life, and we will live by grace alone in Jesus Christ forever. It never ends. And while we are there in the regions of God, the untold numbers, innumerable numbers that are there, not everyone, but the untold numbers that are there, will be there because grace lasts forever. It's not just for this life. Do we live this way? When I was a kid, I was saved at a young age, and through my teenage years, uh, Dad would would teach and study and preach about the uh, second coming, and I would, Lord, I want you to come, but I don't want you to come right now. I know you've never said that. But I did. I got too much to do as if doing here on earth is going to replace doing in heaven. Again, our minds. Sometimes we think Christ comes, that's going to distress us. That's going to hinder us from going to the game, going to the concert. So many first world problems we have to deal with, aren't there? Let's not let our thoughts, our purposes, our decisions blow with the breeze. Peter says, let's gird them up. Let's tie them down. Let's make a decisive life commitment to live in the reality of the grace that is to come. Paul would say in Colossians, set your affections on things above and not on this earth. That's hard to do in a country that is blessed as we are. I would readily admit that. 
do we live this way? Have we girded up the loins of our minds with the grace of Christ's coming? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son. We thank you for the word. We thank you for the admonition contained here. Forgive us, Lord, where we are easily distracted, where I'm easily distracted, and where our focus is not on heavenly things, not on holiness in this life, but on everything but. Peter goes on to say, let's do this because we're obedient children. We have obeyed the gospel, so because we are, we've become children of God, and we are to be obedient children. And so, Lord, I would pray this morning, if there's any that does not know you as Savior, I pray that they would understand that the reality is very clear this morning, that without Jesus Christ, heaven is not their home. And so my prayer is that you'd move in their hearts to convince them of the fact that they're a sinner, a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, and that Jesus is the diadem of God that died for them, paid the price and penalty for their sin, and desires for them to be born again as children of God. There's holiness in the gospel, Lord Jesus. Teach us over these next few weeks as we venture through these verses that of how we are to work in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and long for your second coming. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And so... <clears throat> The invitation is very simple this morning, always is. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, heaven's not your home. No matter how good you think you may be, how good others may say you are, heaven is not your home. But Jesus can be yours this morning. What is required is an acknowledgement of your sin, a repentance of your sin, and then in faith, calling out to him to save. And he will. Peter's simple prayer, Lord, save me. And he did. As we sing this verse, we'll give you an opportunity to make your way out of the pews. If the Lord's spoken to you, we can take you to a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants you to do that this morning. We want you to do that this morning. As a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. You know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Perhaps you need to follow him in believer's baptism or, uh, transfer or join by transfer of letter or statement of faith. We encourage you to make that decision as well. As a child of God, we are easily, easily distracted. This week teaches us that, yes, it's a great week, but as we get toward the end of the week, we're looking at a watch, we're doing, and that's normal. That's a human thing. The Lord wants us to renew our minds and be ready for his second coming. The Lord's spoken to you, won't you come? Brother Mike, what number? 492. 492.